Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, it's Fraser here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Spike podcast. You might like to know that the episode you're about to listen to is also available on video. You can now watch the Spiked podcast on YouTube or via the Spiked website every week. Check it out when you get a chance and let's get straight on to the Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever, we have Spiked deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, race in football, the flip-flopping over Freedom Day and the plan to put the nation on a diet. So on Sunday, England lost in the Euro 2020 final, and it seems as if the country has also lost its mind. There's been a massive moral panic about the behaviour of football fans, and in particular uh, around racism. I mean, Tom, do you want to take us back to Sunday night and tell us a bit what happened? Yeah, so it's the the right side lost in the Euros, and then the right side seems to be losing in the culture war as well, I guess. I mean, it just became instantly, after that, a lot of discussion about togetherness and the country and the country being brought together Mm. by the England team's successes it all just completely disintegrated off the back of, in large part, as you say, this moral panic about racism in football. And I think it's important when we talk about this so we get straight what we mean when we're talking about this. So the racist abuse suffered by, in particular, Sancho, Saka and Rashford in the wake of that penalty shootout is obviously completely abhorrent. Any good person would condemn it. Mm. The thing about moral panics is you have a small problem of horrendous things happening, of bad things happening, of people doing bad things but that it just gets blown out of all proportion. Yeah. And it gets blown out of all proportion to often authoritarian ends, talks of clamps down on this, clamp down on that. And that's exactly what we've seen in the wake of the Euros final. You know, more and more discussion about regulation of social media mm. and more and more demonisation of football fans. This assumption that all of this just demonstrates the racism that exists in the stands. And as we talked about before, this is just the reheating of that age-old prejudice about working-class football fans as slum people watching a slum sport. It's just that identity politics is the new way in which that is presented. So you can condemn the racist abuse that was levelled at those players, whilst also recognise that blowing this out of proportion helps no one. It's certainly not helping our national conversation about race, which has been so vexed by the kind of apocalypticism I think that we've seen in the last couple of days. Yeah, and we should talk a bit about the proportion. I mean, lots of people have tried to sort of compile different figures. You know, as, as bad as it is, kick it out, the anti-racism group cited FA figures showing that, you know, the vast majority, some 70% of these kinds of messages do come from abroad. That doesn't make them any less offensive, of course, but it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't, it shouldn't give license to paint England fans in this light. And lots of other attempts by journalists to sort of get their head around how many, you know, messages, especially real messages there have been, because some of it has been sort of bot activity, have really not managed to find that much. I think the Guardian, you know, looked through over 500,000 messages, something like that, um, and found about 44. 44 too many, certainly, but, you know, do we really not just need to put this in proportion? Yeah, I mean, a really good example is the Rashford um, memorial or, you know, the, the big painting of him um, in Manchester, which 
an individual or maybe a handful of individuals sprayed some nasty stuff on. And then in response, you had like hundreds of people posting love hearts and messages and really nice stuff like kids mm. putting messages saying you're an inspiration. And you know, as with many footballers, there is a, a genuine kind of hero worship of someone who's amazing at their game. And, you know, whatever Rashford missed that penalty by you know, millimeters, inches is nothing. Everyone knows that he is a great footballer and people, you know, name their kids after him and shout his name in stadiums. And there was no, there was no sense of proportion. And I think it's actually really unfair on these young players that they've, in the suffering of, of this defeat and, you know, some of them with the bad penalties, a level of embarrassment that they themselves have admitted to then, you just feel like is no one saying to them, Get off Twitter. It, ignore yeah. it. It's really not what people think about you. People don't think these awful things about you. A handful of bots created by some lunatics and a handful of of, of like genuine nasty people are going to try and seek attention by posting monkey emojis and all sorts of other horrendous stuff. But like with all things, have a proportionate response and don't let it get in your head. There was a really kind of some of the posts that in particular Rashford um, and Mings were posting was this sense that it had really gotten under their skin. And as, you know, I'm not the world's greatest football fan, but the experience of the Euros was a genuine sense of, uh, not to sound kind of like wishy-washy about it, but coming together national spirit. And if you listen to the fans in that final, they were booing Italy and they were cheering every time England touched the ball. And to diminish that sense of, of unity and solidarity uh, by fetishizing really and overblowing a handful of tweets really does a disservice to what football is all about and and what kind of atmosphere it conjures. Uh, you know, and you have to feel sorry for these guys because you think they must be really genuinely hurting about this and they shouldn't be. They should be out listening to their names being chanted in the street. I mean, is the problem that we simply cannot allow football just to be football anymore? I mean, one of the striking things about this week is that it's not only been front page news every day, it's been talked about in the House of Commons. It was mm. the main subject of Prime Minister's questions. Tom, what do you think? I think it's really strange. I think what you see very cynically is the Labour Party and then the kind of identitarian left off to their left, just willfully weaponizing this in order to land political points. Mm. Um, and I think the points that Ella was making about the kind of sense of coming together, I think that was always going to be built on shaky ground, given the fact that particularly when it comes to the political class and the media elite, that all of their talk about unity is lurking in the background of all of that is the fact that they're all gripped by the most acceptable prejudice today, which is against working class people, working Mm. class football fans in particular, as an example of that. I mean, some of the commentary that we've seen since Danny Finkelstein had a column in the Times this week, much celebrated across the Twitter sphere, saying that in those racist, abhorrent tweets, we saw the people who were booing the players taking the knee. That's what we learnt through that and was obviously having a go at Pretty Patel, who I'm sure we'll come on to, for um, saying that she also thought that taking the knee was gesture politics. That claim is built on nothing other than prejudice. Yeah. You know, that YouGov poll that came out a while ago showed that people on balance do support taking the knee, found that 39% of people have a problem with it. They oppose it, they associate it with Black Lives Matter, which they have problems with as an organisation and as a movement for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with racism, I'm sure. Does he genuinely think all of those people are swaddled in this culture of hate that he actually describes, Mm. you know, and also the points about proportion. The thing is, we're not just arguing the toss over figures here. It's actually quite important because one of the things about this kind of new anti-racism, which I think we always have to distinguish from genuine anti-racism, because I think the new variant is is identity politics. It's about pushing racial politics just with a progressive sheen attached to it, is the fact that it survives off of this deep sense of pessimism. And you see that in Mm. the fact 
that a handful of knuckle draggers and people sat in their basements with nothing better to do with their lives and ruin someone's day by sending them something absolutely disgusting define our national conversation about race. The reason for that is, is because of this, this new anti-racism, quote unquote, which needs that level of peril and threat and pessimism constantly. It survives off it. It doesn't want to overcome these things. It'd be the worst thing that ever happened to these people, if that was the case. I think what we're seeing now is that particularly a lot of that is built on fear and loathing of fans. And yeah. I think we saw that come out perfectly in the in the days after all of that. And and we saw the fear and loathing of fans expressed in, in other ways. I mean, you know, I actually quite enjoyed the man who put a firecracker up his bum because it was, <laughs> a, you know, it was quite funny. But that, that image of these, you know, fans behaving raucously, again, is used to tarnish the entire nation. You know, look at these disgusting hooligans, yeah. look at the, you know, these drunks, they can't, you know, can't handle their drink, they can't behave. You know, what do you make of that? Well, you had James O'Brien um, the next day <laughs> saying, oh, this government wants us to talk about personal responsibility, you know, mere hours after we've seen a guy with a flare up his ass in Leicester Square. It's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, no one puts a flare up their ass and thinks it's a sensible thing to do. <laughs> it's, it's just this ridiculous level of bad faith. You've obviously never been in a football crowd. You've never been on a good night out. You understand mm. that people sometimes do stupid things. But there's this, I mean, that we've written for years on spiked about the changing nature of the way in which we approach football and the changing nature of football audiences. I mean, on a very basic level, the higher ticket prices go, the different makeup of the crowd becomes. And, you know, part, one thing that's really been uh, sat, not sat well with me throughout this tournament is however good Gareth Southgate's been in, in terms of actually managing the team and getting them to the finals and all that stuff. The main discussion about him in the media set, often for people who aren't football fans, is isn't it so wonderful that he like gets them photographed on blow up unicorns and he celebrates their vulnerability and mm. he's such a lovely guy and really what they're saying it's not that there's any benefits to being those things because obviously it's a nice thing to be a good guy but that he's not like that you know he's not like that dirty mm. kind of part of football that that we don't really like when people sing songs that are a bit you know political or contentious or when they spit or when mm -hmm. they swear and it's that kind of uh like you said the kind of loathing for what is always historically been a working class sport i mean if you talk about gesture politics with pretty patel the thing that strikes me and i have to say i'm so sick of talking about taking the knee now and if there's this it's <laughs> for most fans that is their sense their should, we sense is, should we just uh, back up a second and introduce the the controversy around Pretty Patel, because, yeah. um, you know, we should talk about that in, in depth. Um, Tyrone Mings this week called her out, essentially yeah. accused her of stoking racism after she basically just congratulated the mm. England team and said, don't be racist. Yeah, but she, she, like every politician, got a professional picture of her taken cheering and mm. a very nice high quality in the England fan. And, you know, whether or not she is a proper England fan, who cares? It's what well, she politicians... She's seen that spotted with the clothes tag yeah. still on while yeah. he's wearing a shirt. But <laughs> if you're talking about just politics it's one th it's one th yeah i think it's perfectly reasonable to criticize taking the knee as a me method of gesture politics it doesn't make my blood boil but it also doesn't make my heart sing i don't think it's particularly useful either way but if you want to talk about approach to race or approaches to immigration for example there's plenty of stuff to criticize pretty patel on in terms of her role in the home office the hostile environment her immigration policy not on this thing about taking the knee which yeah. actually delegitimizes any kind of serious discussion about what it is what you know attitudes to race in society or attitudes to immigration and this sort of fawning celebration of the idea that the England team couldn't exist without immigration 
it, are, are immigrants always immigrants? Are they never England players? Yeah. Are they never British citizens? Are they, what, you know, it, there's this real patronizing approach to it, which is drippingly middle class. And it's just going to put more and more people off having a sensible discussion mm. about this. The other thing around Priti Patel, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what, at what cycle of the outrage we're at at the moment, mm. but, um, in response to Tyrone Ming's tweets, then you have a kind of racist backlash against Patel, you know, essentially a kind of left wing identitarian racism. One of this is one of the sad, sad products of this kind of racial identity mm. poli- uh, politics where, you know, Asian people, black people who don't agree with BLM, who don't, you know, buy this line that they're oppressed, suddenly find themselves on the receiving end of some really disgusting hate. I think that's a perfect snapshot as well of how you see that this new anti-racism is not really interested in tackling racism, it's interested in pushing identity politics mm. because they're remarkably silent about racism that doesn't fit the bill. So when it's people abusing Priti Patel for taking the stands that she takes, or, you know, Howard Beckett a while ago suggesting she should be deported, all yeah. of this stuff. This and the trade union this, official. The trade union official. And Raki Bassan wrote about this on, on Spike this week. Priti Patel's detractors on the identitarian left can't help but bring her race into it. Yeah. I mean, it's really quite shocking. And I think also Prime Minister's questions didn't really land because he's terrible at Prime Minister's questions. But one of Boris Johnson's points was to hold up that leaflet from the Batley and Spen by-election mm. in which there was this kind of anti-Hindu, anti-Indian message that was sent out to try and uh, gain some support amongst Muslim voters. They don't care about that stuff because they're not really interested mm. in tackling racism here. What they're interested in is pushing this identity politics for short-term political gain in relation to the Labour Party and their outriders and more broadly because people genuinely think it's a good and anti-racist thing to have an increasingly racialized divided and tense atmosphere in society. That's what it's about. And I think that's why the Priti Patel thing keeps happening is because really their priority is not about racism. It's about something else. And then on on the other side, it seems as if it's becoming clearer and clearer that the Tories are unable to stand up to this kind of thing. Many on the Conservative side are kind of giving in to BLM. You spoke about um, Danny Finkelstein, the Tory peers column in The Times this week. You've also had Steve Baker and Johnny Mercer saying, you know, we look as if we're going to be on the wrong side of this debate. Shouldn't we have just gone along with taking the knee? I mean, what do, you, what do we make of that? Why, why are the Tories unable to articulate what a substantial number of the public feel that, you know, actually this is not the anti-racism that I know before. This is something different. Yeah, well, the important point that you make is that they, they're worried about looking like they're on the wrong side yeah. of the debate. So, you know, not to kind of sound like a broken record, but if you did want to do something concrete about... Uh, approaches to, you know, it seems to me one of the most important discussions if you're talking about racism or xenophobia or things like that in in the UK is to talk about immigration policy or to have that debate, which since the Brexit vote, even though there's been so many moral panics about it, has never actually been had out as a political discussion. They're not interested in doing anything there. What they are interested in is what the optics are on social media. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it feels like a bit of a crass point to say, you know, Twitter isn't real life, but it really isn't. And yet you have the sort of feels like policy almost being made and, you know, spads behind the scene briefing their ministers on what they should tweet, on what they should uh, brief the papers on to maintain an image. And I know I know, know politics has always been mostly about performance rather than substance, but there's a real cynical aspect to this because they also know that Twitter isn't real life in terms of, of the makeup of people that are on that. Mm. What they're really doing is trying to curry favour with a certain section of a media class uh, and basically throwing out the views or, or dismissing the views of a wider public. So, you know, 
that the most people don't have a particularly strong view on taking the knee. It's a bit like wearing the poppy or stuff like that. It's, it's a gesture that some people take. What they object to is the idea that if you don't engage in this gesture, that you are wrongheaded in the same way that if you don't say trans women or women, you are a bigot or all these things mm-hmm. that we've talked about on this podcast. It's forcing people into a certain way that gets their backs up um, rather than actually often the actual substance of what you're mm-hmm. talking about. I think on that point about the substance, I think to the extent that the Tories have engaged in the cultural war or wanted to take up, take it up to a certain extent, they've done it in at best an incredibly superficial way. Yeah. And I think what they miss is the fact that underpinning this is not just kind of unending arguments about things that don't matter. This is things that really matter in all of this. And I think a lot of it when it comes to race and the culture war, it is basically that battle between anti-racism, we might previously have understood it, mm. and this new racial identity politics and which of these is going to win out is it going to be the older form of politics which saw race as something to be transcended something to be gotten over and that celebrated progress because that was the thing that you wanted to achieve or is it this woke politics which believes that there's been no progress whatsoever which is desperate to paint society in racial terms to reorganize society on racial terms and is so attached to being to things being bad that they invent these moral panics in order to keep the whole show on the road that's when you're talking about taking the knee in a sense is the kind of broader issues at play the Tories either because they're kind of not sophisticated enough to see this or just don't have the stomach for the fight either of which are entirely plausible they don't get that Mm -hmm. the thing about the culture is it can seem silly and frivolous because you end up having arguments about knee taking or this or that yeah but underpinning it is something very important and I think maybe that's that's something that the Tories or at least a lot of people don't seem to grasp at this point I just wanted to take a moment out of the Spike podcast to tell you a little bit about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our new and thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop, and you can bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet so many of you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure anyone, anywhere can enjoy our content. We really are grateful for that. So if you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. And sticking with the Tories flip-flopping, let's talk about Freedom Day. Um, It's still sort of going ahead on the 19th of July, (laughs) but it feels like, um, I mean, we say the same thing every week. It's almost if we take two steps forward and one step back. So, I mean, you know, we've had the rows over masks. Will they be mandatory? No, they're just expected, but that's kind of like social pressure to keep them on. There's also been discussion about introducing vaccine passports, COVID passes to all kinds of hospitality venues when we're supposedly free. I mean, what have you made of these the, this latest week of uh, flip-flopping? Well, it's, it, we've said it before that the half the importance of a Freedom Day is to actually remove legislation and hmm. to open up and to do pract- practically to reopen society. The other half of it is to give a political message of saying, 
all right, this is now coming to an end and normal life is a very important thing. It's not just a, a, a nice idea and it's something that we have to actively try and reinstitute. And the Tories have, you know, Boris Johnson it, it has failed on the practical measures in terms of, you know, this whole uh, flip-flopping on masks and, you know, the war now happening over whether or not there will be vac- mandatory vaccinations in care homes. But he's also most majorly failed on the uh, ability to put forward any kind of positive or inspirational message to combat the very real problem of a of a remaining level of fear in society and a remaining level of tension over whether people think they actually do want to or can come out you know the the to focus on the vaccinate mandatory vaccinations in care homes it's a really good example of where cynical things happen in in government and how um, I think in particular Boris Johnson allows certain people to be thrown under the bus because and you know I'm genuinely conflicted on this anyone can see that the pandemic you know has put social care workers under extreme stress they mm. are badly paid they have you know a lot of them are on zero hours contrast it's a, a lot of the time a really crap hard job to do but it's very important and to then demonise these people now by suggesting that they're all awful and need to be forced by the state to be vaccinated, rather than having a sensible discussion of we've got a problem that lots of people aren't vaccinated, perhaps we want to get a little bit heavy on the social pressure in a positive way to try and get them to come around to this very important thing of getting vaccinated. They just throw them under the bus. And now people are reading newspaper articles and thinking, what's happening with all these horrible care home workers who are going in and coughing on old people? It's a complete distortion of what's actually going on. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where it needs a real sensitive debate. You've got I'm sick of hearing anti lock real, you know, real hardline anti lockdowners. And Brendan O'Neill wrote a great article on this for Spike this week, who are obsessed with the idea of bodily autonomy and completely blind to the idea that the fact that this is a social thing and that we need a social response to this virus. But on the other hand, you then have this sort of very, that Rob Lyons wrote about, this sort of very carefree way of treating workers' rights and the suggestion that what a care home worker um, thinks and feels about their own body is irrelevant. There has to be some kind of space for debate about this without governments using it as a means to just avoid having a spotlight shone on what they're doing wrong. And also the, on the kind of broader question of, you know, vaccine passports, it feels as if that's something that's just going to be decided on a whim, basically, yeah. by, you know, whatever mood Boris Johnson or Sajid Javid are feeling it at the time, because we've been, you know, they've been asserted and then taken back and then asserted against so many times. Mm. Well, there's been a lot of talk about taking responsibility. The government at this point doesn't want to take responsibility for the policies it quite clearly wants to pursue. And yeah. I think we see that with vaccine passports now. We see that with masks. We see that with the guidance which has now gone out to hospitality as well as mm. businesses, basically telling them that, that to very strongly um, urging them to basically carry on as they are at the moment with yeah. table service and masks and what have you, is because of the fact that they're effectively just now pouring pressure on the private sector to, to do what it's <laughs> it, the government wants to do. Mm. And one of the things that I think is worth sort of underlying here is there's a lot of discussion, rightly so, about the use of fear during the pandemic. But it's important to remember the culture of fear, it grips politics and politicians themselves. Yeah. They are terrified of making decisions. They are terrified of what's going to happen. A lot of that is informed by the fact they have no principles to stand by. They have mm. no broader vision. They're also terrified of public opinion or what they assume to be public opinion. Uh, a lot of this just shows how they themselves are gripped by this sense of fear. They themselves cannot take responsibility for what is actually going to happen. And so we end up with a situation where you have Freedom Day, where supposedly people can take off their masks, where supposedly the restrictions in hospitality are going to go away. 
vaccine passports supposedly were going to be a thing of the past. Now all coming back, but they're just it's going to effectively be enforced by business under the sustained moral pressure of gov- government and civil society, which yeah. is a completely different thing. And it takes it away from the individual, which is what they said all of this was going to be about. But yeah, I think underpinning that, all of that is just the inability of this government to take responsibility for policy and for leading. And that's yeah. something that you've seen throughout this pandemic, definitely. And, and because they don't really have any real commitment to freedom, I think they're probably more worried about the economy. I think that's probably driving their commit, their alleged commitment to Freedom Day and, you know, loosening some of these rules. And backbenchers. And the, backbench- yeah. and the, and the Tory backbenchers who are sick of the restrictions, of course. But because they have no real commitment to freedom, they've been actually really bad at explaining why they're taking this step. And that has allowed them to sort of row back at every opportunity They've been terrible at, say, explaining, even explaining why the vaccines make things okay, why this is now manageable. Mm. You know, they they haven't been able to articulate why they're doing what they're doing and instead are, as as you've suggested, so I'm doing, you know, doing things through the back door, piling pressure on the private sector rather than, you know, taking an actual lead. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the, the whole point is there is only so much that even the government can take a lead on. And I think we have to start as citizens, not being like crude or acting like an asshole and like ripping off your mask and shouting in someone's face or (laughs) you know it's a tense situation in out there in society and people are really divided about this and so kind of heavy-handed approaches is probably not the right time but i if the government is saying uh you don't have to wear masks but we really think you should well i disagree in many circumstances Mm. and that's okay i don't have to agree with the government because the government's not my mum like and it's not setting my (laughs) bedtime rules and so in an empty train carriage i don't care what sadiq khan says i'm not going to wear it in a very crowded library with lots of old people i might you Mm. know and there's Mm. and taking actually ownership over those you know, never mind the James O'Briens of this world, nor those people that poo-poo the idea of social responsibility and personal responsibility. It's only going to mean something and we're only going to claw back the meaning of those phrases if we actually start, unless we actually start taking them and start bit by bit kind of actually physically rubbing up against each other and having discussions on the bus when someone takes off a mask and they don't like it or when they do like it and just reclaiming that public space that's going to be the thing that's important. I think the government needs to have a wake-up call of saying, you've had 15, 18 months now of telling us what to do. And fair enough, in some situations, it was acceptable and understandable, but it's not any longer. Mm. And I'm not suggesting that people start going out and, you know, breaking rules and rioting, but maybe lick, I lick am. Lick a stranger. Maybe not the rioting, but, <laughs> lick a stranger but breaking a few rules because actually some of these rules don't make sense. Well, I think that's an important thing to say as well because one of the things kind of before this week when the goalposts shifted quite decisively, it feels mm. like, was that you saw a lot of discussion about personal responsibility being sensible, but what was being framed as being responsible and sensible was so restrictive. I mean, it was basically saying you should carry on wearing your mask in all the situations you normally would, with the exception of an empty tube train, which no rational person would have kept theirs on for anyway, unless they were worried to get a fine or something like that. You don't have to wear one on your Zoom calls anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the things that was so troubling about the discussion was basically we're removing these things, but really we're saying is that it would be mad for you to stop acting in the way that you are currently acting. The differences will take away the legal penalty. I think we need to have a very clear-eyed discussion about this because if that is what the near term is, then that's not getting back to normal. Yeah. And considering the fact that, as we all know, we have to live with the virus, that's we will never get back to normal. I mean, mm. Sadiq Khan's comments about uh, masks still going to be mandatory on TfL being a condition of carriage and all the rest of it. If his exact line was as long as COVID is with us and as long as we're concerned about transmission, that is forever. Yeah. So unless we make a very clear um, 
unless we get into a much clearer discussion about what being responsible means and if it means that then we're never going to get back to normal i think that's something which we really have to make clear at this point are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom anti-woke person in your life then look no further than the spiked shop you can now get your favorite spiked slogan on a t-shirt hoodie tote bag or mug including ban nothing question everything love europe hate the eu and cancel cancel culture and if you're a spiked supporter you can get a 15 percent discount on anything just go to spiked-online.com forward slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases that's spiked-online.com forward slash shop We should talk about another area of um, life that maybe used to be a personal responsibility and could soon become a responsibility of the government or slightly more so than um, than usual. This week, the government's published its national food strategy, talking about adding taxes on salt and sugar and the possibility of GPs prescribing fruit and vegetables. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> some one, from one set of restrictions to another. <laughs> It shows you it shows you how far Boris Johnson has changed. I mean, he was mm. uh, the idea that he was this lover of liberty. Always, I was like, oh, yeah, it was always a bit overblown, over, but overblown. But still, he's had this kind of uh, change, complete change of lifestyle after his COVID scare, and he has lost all this weight and blah blah blah. And now he's okay with things that previously he would he spoke out against. And the fascinating thing about, I mean, one of the, the the main thing that's been picked up on is this sugar and salt tax and the prescribing vegetables. But the whole idea of this food strategy strategy isn't to increase production of food to even you know, like practical things like giving people you know farmers subsidies to make more vegetables or I don't know just like any practical sense it's all about stopping con- consumption mm. and limiting people's um, access to consumption although they say it's all about actually broadening people's scope no one needs carrots just prescribed by a gp <laughs> everyone I, I can't believe how how mm. we still need to say this that Anyone who is fat is not going around fat, not understanding why when they eat their third Mars bar, it goes straight to their backside. Mm. It's a it's a total misunderstanding of the problem. If you want, even if you want to see it as a problem, I mean, Henry Dimbleby, who's been central to all of this, um, in a press release that was put out by the BBC, said, you know, if we follow all these strategies and we do the sugar tax and we um, get GBs to fed, then people will uh, p- potentially save thirty eight calories a day, yeah, which could lead up end. to yeah, four pounds a year, and you think <laughs> I gain and lose that in a, in a week or two. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so even on a kind of scientific basis, this doesn't make sense. Eating healthily takes time. Why don't you m- manage to give some people more time so they have time to dress up the broccoli mm. and enjoy it? And it also takes money. You know, like the, there's a, a very practical thing of cheap food mm. is often unhealthy. Do something about that. Stop lecturing people. Tom, no, I think that's exactly it. Because all of these taxes are regressive, Mm. everyone knows this. I mean, it's even nodded to in the strategy itself because it talks about trying to kind of ameliorate the difference by ploughing more money into free school meals or this, you know, plan to be able to pick up your cabbages at a pharmacy or whatever it is that they've got (laughs) set out for this. They recognise that what they're basically doing is trying to 
put the working classes on a diet in order to save the NHS. I mean, they yeah. literally use that phrase specifically, which I think is interesting. And the climate us, as well as the, the other cl- aspect. Of you're it. saving the climate, <laughs> you're saving the NHS, what's not to like? But it's re- there's a recognition of that, but it doesn't change the fact of how regressive it is. They say, mm. oh, these, uh, this salt and sugar tax could raise three and a half billion or something like this. That means adding three and a half billion to people's shopping um, costs. That's basically what it means. Yeah. And of course, in terms of the consumption of salty and sugary foods, it's disproportionately working class and poorer people who eat this kind of stuff. And now, as you say, it first of all, it completely misunderstands the kind of broader economic issues and all the rest of it. But also you just kind of think of all the things to obsess about in mm. relation to the quality of life of working class people. What they eat seems mm. to me to be just moralism. I mean, it's like that famous off-quoted paragraph in... um wrote to Wigan Pier, George Orwell, you know, yeah. talking about, you know, a millionaire might like to snack on biscuits and orange juice, but someone who's unemployed doesn't. They want something tasty. Mm. That's not a crazy thing. It's not to suggest that working class and poor people are incapable of eating healthy mm. and are incapable of taking in that information and trying to better their diet and that that wouldn't be a good thing. It's just to put things in a little bit of perspective, not to moralise about it and not in the pursuit of making these lives and making these people's lives better, make them worse off. Yeah. That seems to me to be quite a clear <laughs> thing. But again, there's a, some recognition of it, but not really, obviously. But also, you know, there, if you... If there are things that we could do better, for example, like it's, it links in with like the housing crisis, the fact that so many people are living in crappy little flats. I mean, the pandemic's shown us that space is such at such a premium that why not you why not build a few more you know local playgrounds, local parks where people can have the space to go out and run about do things that give people more choice and mm. more access to resources rather than limiting them. And there's also the question of, you know, people go on endlessly about uh, eating disorders and especially with young people, mental health issues and how you've got to kind of cost at them. And we, we have criticism of that in a different frame. I tell you, pathologizing sugary food and and f- encouraging kids to calorie count or check the salt labels on their crisps is one sure way to give them an unhealthy eating habits. I mean, that is really a way to give a kid a complex. Mm. You want to be avoiding that at all costs. And this food, whether it's full of sugar or not, is food. It still feeds you. It's still going to keep you alive. Like we need to be have a sort of a sensible approach to this, which says you don't also want to teach kids that they have to be absolutely obsessed and adults as it happens with everything they put in their mouth food is to be enjoyed not to be obsessed over thank you for listening to the spike podcast we're back every friday and you can now watch us on video too check us out on youtube or go via the spiked website which is spiked-online.com see you next time